Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. as <laughs> Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. On December 2nd, we welcome back a grand Sydney icon. The glorious Theatre Royal will once again open its doors and usher its audience into a cultural haven. Regarded as the city's oldest theatre, it has been on the same site since 1875, albeit through a few incarnations. In 1975, famed architect Harry Seidler reimagined the theatre and it found home as part of the MLC Centre on King Street. Dark since 2016, the theatre will burst into life once again with the stage adaptation of Alana Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Productions of Girl from the North Country and An American in Paris follow early in the new year, guaranteeing the Theatre Royal as a venue to see exciting and stimulating theatrical fare. Stages is joined in this episode by the Theatre Royal CEO, Torben Brookman. Torben shares a little of what treats await us when we return to the Royal. A visual and visceral experience is assured. Torben Brookman is also one of the country's leading theatre makers. He's overseen the production of commercial theatre and festivals nationally and throughout Asia. He was managing the Phantom of the Opera in South Korea when COVID arrived. At one point, the production was the only live theatre experience operating in the world. We also catch up with what Torben has been doing over this past very eventful year. Now, the theatre, correct me if I'm wrong, has been closed since 2016, is that right? Yeah, there or thereabouts. It's, um, it, it's one of those interesting ones that kind of slowly closed and then um, then just sort of ceased to be for a moment there and, and it almost ceased to be permanently but there was a lot of lobbying and a lot of um, desire to keep it open on behalf of the industry and then obviously Trafalgar uh, and the team there felt very strongly about it as well so the fact that it's going to reopen at the end of this year is is terrific. It's been acquired by Trafalgar Entertainment hasn't it with a a deal with the New South Wales government which will see a a 55-year lease which is very impressive. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was uh, the New South Wales government that initially stepped in to kind of shore up the, the future of the theatre, which is um, great credit to them. And then uh, an arrangement's been made with um, Trafalgar then to take on the lease for, for 55 years, which, um, yeah, really hopefully gives the, the building certainty for the rest of its life. So I think there's um, there probably would be a guarantee then that Sydney might get to see a few shows first before anyone else in the country with... Uh, associated to Trafalgar? Absolutely. It was very much part of the, the pitch from um, uh, Sir Howard Panther and, and Dame Rosemary Squire, who 
who sat at Trafalgar a few years ago and, and certainly when they were looking at the Theatre Royal and and taking the theatre on, part of the desire was to kind of bring shows either from around the world or, or originate shows in the Theatre Royal first in Sydney so that Sydney gets to see them for the rest of the country. I think the last show I saw at the Royal was Ghost. Would that have been right about 20, 2016? It, it prob- probably would have been in 2015, I think. Ghost would have would have been there and um, I was fortunate enough to be um, producing that as well for, between GWB and um, Ambassador Theatre Group at the time. So, um, yeah, it was a terrific season for that. that actually, it was one of those shows that um, you, you might remember, but there's that great subway um, scene within the, the show and... Um, Thankfully, the Theatre Royal was the right venue at the time for that subway scene because the rattling of the train underneath the theatre was almost perfectly timed for the scene within the show with the subway, so it worked very well. Save a fortune on special effects. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that was one of my questions later in the conversation, but I'll ask it now, seeing as you brought it up. Will we still? Can we still expect to hear the uh, the trains rattle by underneath? And the vibrations, no doubt. Sometimes theatre was in 4D. It almost was. It was an experience. Um, look, I think I'm very pleased to say that I think people know there's a marked difference. I can't go into the details, but I think it would be really encourage everyone who has known the theatre over many years, to which that was a, a constant feature to come in and um, appreciate the difference and see how it actually works. But it's um, it, it's incredible the, the difference that's been made over a little while. And, um, yes, the train noise is, is far, far reduced. Yeah. Now, a, a little thing called COVID came along the way, I think, at the start of 2020, and uh, that certainly interrupted plans for the opening, didn't it? You've, you're opening later than uh, you originally anticipated. Yeah, it did. Not, not, my, not by much, mind you. We were originally hoping to open in, in early September. Um, but, um, yeah, just with the mainly the, the Sydney lockdown um, it was the biggest effect on that. Um, it just slowed up construction across the board. So it's, it's a really complex building site, the MLC Centre, and because there's so much other work that's being, is being done on the MLC Centre at the same time as the theatre, it's um, a yeah, really complicated site to navigate. So the, the lockdowns in Sydney just meant that um, the, with the reduction of workforce on site, we weren't quite able to, to keep on, on schedule. But um, the fact that we're going to be able to open in December just as, as Sydney and New South Wales is reopening is actually almost a... A fitting moment, actually. Yeah. What were you doing, Torben, in uh, in February, March, twenty twenty, just before the big sea February, arrived? February, March, twenty twenty. I, I just <laughs> I just finished loading in uh, with my colleagues, um, School of Rock, into the Adelaide Festival Centre, and we were about to uh, have our first preview the following day when when everything got got shut down. So we were sort of caught perfectly in the eye of the storm, as it were. So we had um. So that was in Australia, and then we had Matilda was currently playing in Manila at the time, and, and had to get a company out of the Philippines on short notice as well. It was, yeah. And then we had the Phantom of the Opera, which you know we were very lucky actually. It was one of those few COVID um, uh, silver linings, I guess, and we managed to keep the entire season of the Phantom of the Opera playing in South Korea right the way through 2020, right through its season, which was um, not an easy achievement, but but something that um, everyone was very proud of. Yeah, I, I think you were, you could probably safely say you were the only live theatre performing in the world, weren't you, that that phantom in South Korea? We were at a moment, and um, there was actually a documentary crew ended up shooting a, a whole documentary which got released uh, in August um, 
in the US and that just sort of followed the journey that the company went on. Initially, kind of all these company members were saying, what, we're going to keep continuing, how can we? And then fast forward three weeks later and everyone going, oh my gosh, we're the only people still working in the world. (laughs) Very happy to be still continuing. So it was, yeah, a real adventure. Um, And the, the team over there on the ground in Korea just did an incredible job along with the local Korean partners and Korean health about um, finding ways to keep the show open. Um, Yeah, it was incredible. So how did you keep it open? Because I imagine it requires a lot of determination, a lot of courage, a lot of concern for safety and and being Mm. really informed from from the health departments and and everything. How how did you look after your audience and, and your performers? Yeah, I think that was the interesting thing, and particularly a place like South Korea that had had um, the, the SARS outbreak a number of years before, I think what we in Australia had to learn quite quickly with regards to contact tracing and track and trace and all those sorts of things, they were a long way ahead with their systems in that regard. So they sort of had, while it certainly wasn't a protocol to deal with with all of COVID, they certainly had, had a head start in terms of how to deal with the contact tracing. Um, and so they very, very quickly implemented that at the venues. Um, they were able to work with the health department to um work through protocols which included mask wearing sanitation everywhere um uh what else was there temperature checks at entrances uh there was almost uh, daily testing for the company so it was very very rigorous in terms of um health and safety and it managed to be such a way that um even though two of the cast members actually ended up coming down with COVID at a certain point, two of the American cast members who they realised had come into Korea with COVID, um, they ended up containing it to such a degree that that didn't actually spread to the rest of the cast or crew or, or any patron. So we went through the whole season with there not being a single um, incidence of um, transmission at the theatre, uh, either within the company or within the, within the patron. So, so that felt like a pretty major achievement. How, how big are the theatres that, that where, where Phantom was playing? Was it a big one or? Yeah, it was about a 1,600-seat theatre. Yeah, okay, so, so quite large. Very, very reasonable size, yeah. In contrast to those Broadway and West End theatres, of course, which are so intimate and you're, well, you're sitting right. on I mean, top it, of each it, other. It's sort of a modern, yeah, and it's one of the a modern 1,600-seat theatres that we would be more used to in Australia as opposed to the, the Broadway and West End theatres where everybody, as you say, is completely... Um, on top of each other so it probably had some advantages going for it there but I think the main the main big advantage that really helped South Korea in those early days was the was the contact tracing and if there was an outbreak how quickly they were able to get on get on top of it. Well it sounds like the staff at the Royal and and uh, any audience members uh, are going to be in safe hands with with the, that experience <laughs> that you've had you, you certainly will be double and triple checking everything. Yeah absolutely I think it's one of those things that uh, I think audience members want to want to know they're going back into a to a safe venue and that their safety is paramount and um, that 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 by going to a theatre they're not exposing themselves to undue risk. So uh, as theatre operators, it's our duty both for the, the the workers within the venues, but also certainly the audience members for them to be able to come and enjoy a, a performance with confidence and security that they're um, uh, as safe as possible. Um, will you be a need to check vaccination certificates, or I suppose when they check in now, it's it's all linked, isn't it? So it is all linked. It's a really interesting point um, because obviously in New South Wales, up until the first of December, to attend the theatre um, vaccination is mandatory. Uh, our first preview is on the second of December, 
um, and the New South Wales government's made a determination that you know that it's up to businesses to decide what they wish to do in terms of whether uh, being double vaccinated is mandatory for entry. We're working through that ourselves at the moment. We're we're working very closely with with New South Wales Health and following that advice uh, as to determine what what our final position will be. But certainly within the the staff of the theatre, it's um, a mandatory vaccination policy and everybody is, is double vaccinated within the staff because we feel like that's the strongest duty of care that we have to our staff to ensure that they're as safe as possible given they'll be interacting with a lot of patrons. And, you know, with all those disparate bodies too uh, at the theatre, the, the staff, the front of house staff, the audience, the performers, the crew, they all practise bubbles, don't they? They're, they're never, the, never the twain or the, the quart shall mix really. Yeah, that's right. It, ma- it makes that, that, that the necessity of a fourth wall almost even more important because um, particularly for, for the shows because um, from the production side, you end up in a situation where if there's an outbreak within that company, losing uh, seven, seven days of performances potentially for a double vaccinated company can be crippling on a producer and on a show. So um, ensuring that, that there aren't any outbreaks within the cast or the crew or the musicians is really, really important. So, you know, we're having to ask all of our company members to, to just be uh, as safe as possible at all times, not just when they're rehearsing, but, but outside of the theatre hours as well, because um, limiting that potential exposure is going to be really important. Torben, there are many strings to your bow. Um, you've had vast experiences. Let's traverse a, a few of those now, you know, in, in commercial theatre, um, festivals and venue management. Um, you grew up in Adelaide. Yes. And um, it would seem that the family business is um, is theatre and performance and, and, and festival and making art. It, it is a bit, I guess, and probably not by design, more by accident, really. But um, my my father's a, a producer and a, a theatre director and an administrator and um, my mum's a, a writer, both of poetry and, um, uh, and plays. Uh, me and my brothers ended up growing up and we were kind of the, when, when there was a visiting show in town coming into the festival centre or whatever and they needed a, a child to, to fill a part or something in a touring show, we were always the ones who got roped in and thrown in on stage to, to help out, which was which was a delight, I suppose. But at the time, we never really saw that as a, a pathway to a career. So um, we ended up just doing that a little bit and then inevitably picked up all of this various part-time experience through the theatre, whether it be, um, you know, box office or front of house or crewing on shows or live events. Um, that sort of became this on-the-job practical training that that both myself and my brothers to a certain extent experienced. Um, but I never really thought that this would be a, a career for me so I went off at university I did a science degree um and um, sensible thought I was, <laughs> yeah that's right I probably haven't really used a day of it since um but then had a, a situation where I could either go back and uh start my honors in science which is going to be in exercise physiology or uh through that summer holiday I've worked on one of the very early Wome Adelaide world music festivals through the holidays as sort of a um, production assistant or coordinator or something and I had to make a choice to either go back and start my honours or sort of delay it by a little bit and um, I could then see through the festival, which was due to happen in March. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just defer by six months as I really wanted to see what, what all the fuss was about after having working in the office on this festival, mythical festival for four months before. Um, 
and then got through and experienced what it was like, you know, in the park uh, with that festival going on. And um, from that moment on, I was like, oh, actually going back the the year in the lab doing my honours degree in exercise physiology didn't feel as um, appealing anymore. So needless to say, I've remained permanently deferred from going back and doing it. Well, ultimately, I think we all need to find what makes us happy. And, uh, you know, working, making theatre, live performance, um, there's a tremendous adrenaline rush, isn't there? There's uh, whether it's just that achievement of, of putting that on a stage or the response of the audience. Um, and that's addictive. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it is. And it's just that thing of um, being able to, I think it's the shared experience of it all as well. Um, and you know, you become a little bit of a an, an addict to adrenaline in some way because that, that moment of um, the build-up and the planning and then it all just having, you know, there's a, there's a deadline that can't be shifted. You know, that, that opening night is opening night and, and you have to be ready and you have to make it happen. And, um, yeah, it's sort of a unique breed of a person who wants to, to go along for that ride. But, um, you know, I find them all to be incredibly exciting from cast, crew, musicians, everyone. It's a great group of people to be around. When are you able to relax on opening night? Once once the overture starts, or are you still sort of holding oh, your breath until no. the very yeah, end? When, <laughs> <laughs> the very end, when the audience, when finally that that curtain comes down, because almost that thing of even even the overture at the top of the show, you're still sort of paranoid right the way through that it could be that one moment because it is live, obviously, and you know it's right the way through a show, anything could happen, and so you just want to get through to that final curtain and and feel like you make it through without anything going wrong. So growing up, is there a show that you can identify which um, seduced you into wanting to explore, go down this path of, of theatre making? Yeah, I think it probably was um, probably in Les Miserables, I think. Um, I think at the very that first Australian production, I... Um, I've seen lots of different things along the way. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then when Les Mis was touring, it, and it, it certainly wasn't the first show I saw or, or one that made the first in, biggest impact straight away, but, um, but uh, my grandmother was a massive fan of it as well and she bought these two double cassette tapes back in the time of the, of the cast recording. Um, and would, would play it constantly. So I think I went along to, when I saw the show, I, I, I just went with such familiarity of the music and, um, and and equally we used to live up in the hills and driving down to school and um, we there was an audio recording of the Victor Hugo book and, and that equally was played over the course of probably a term of sort of 45-minute um, car rides down to school. And so I just felt like I, when I went into the theatre, I was intimately connected with this story and the music already and then seeing it come to life in front of me it kind of was a real moment um so i think that probably probably features really strongly in terms of the yeah the, the major journey that put me on this path i guess yeah that show had legs oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> great now growing up in adelaide you, you've also managed to work as an executive producer at the adelaide cabaret festival and um the adelaide festival you had some time there as deputy executive director um why Adelaide we talk about there's a state theatre company in adelaide it's such a, a vibrant center for the arts why why do you think that's so um i think part part of it's kind of um certainly from a festival perspective it's size i think that size and um proximity 
make such a huge difference in a festival environment. Um, Adelaide's, you know, the, the square mile of Adelaide, all of those venues contained within that square mile. You can actually, if you want to, you could walk everywhere. Um, and so then in that period of time in February and March when the Festival and Fringe are taking place, um, it's, it's such that it, it feels like it takes over the entire city. So, so everybody is involved in some way, shape or form. Um, so I think it kind of sets a tone for the city through that period of time. Um, I think probably less successfully, it's probably fair to be said that over the rest of the year, it's probably not as vibrant. Um, but certainly during that February, March period, it sets a tone for what people expect. Uh, and then I think the rest of the year, people are sort of trying to, trying to recreate it somehow, which can never really be done. But um, yeah, having, having that, that, that environment, and that brings a lot of people in, I think. So people see, come and see what it's like. Um, but certainly growing up, Adelaide felt like a place that I had to leave um, to make my way. These days, being back here and living here, it doesn't feel that way at all, actually. It feels like it's a really um, wonderful place to live that manages to combine uh, being exciting and vibrant enough with being also very livable and <laughs> relaxing in certain times. Yeah. I got to experience my first cabaret festival in June and I couldn't believe how fantastic it was. And as you say, you can walk everywhere, but there was such yep. a buzz. People were so excited to be there. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? I, I love that that fest, cabaret festival time of year. And um, you, you know, back when I did the festival as well, it was before before the never-ending renovations of the festival theatre were taking place as well. So, actually, in and amongst that festival centre precinct, there was you know that that whole area was really alive in a way that hasn't quite been possible since the the festival theatre renovations have been going on. But um, hopefully, by next year, that'll all be. Be done and, and that precinct will be opening back up again. Yeah. Avenue Q, a wonderful musical. I, I think that's the first venture that you had as a, as a producer on your own, is that right? First major musical, yeah. Yeah. So we'd done various other things. The first thing that we that we ever did was probably back in 2002, 2003, and we put on a, a small play at the Adelaide Fringe, which is where I sort of started and then on a wing and a prayer, the next year took that across the Edinburgh um, Fringe Festival and had a hugely successful season over there, which was wonderful. Um, but yes, no, that was, was very much a, on the smaller end of things and then did various sort of tours from that point onwards. But but yeah, Avenue Q was the first major project that we went out to, to really sort of secure the Australian and New Zealand rights and take on in a big way. It's a great show. I was fortunate enough to see it in Broadway and the West End and here eventually. What was the attraction to Avenue Q? Why that show of all the shows you could have picked? Yeah, well, we saw it. We saw it on on Broadway as well, and um, I think it was probably one of those shows. You go through different stages of different what you're looking for in shows at different points in your life, I suppose. And I think we saw Avenue Q in New York, and I think it was one of those examples of of kind of going, oh wow, I didn't I didn't know musical theatre could be like this. Um, you know, the fact that it was, um, yeah, telling a story that, that I suppose not often told, the puppetry element of it, the fact that it was sort of naughty and a bit crass and a bit cheeky, um, all of those things combining. And then the brilliant music um, by Bobby Lopez and, and Jeff Marks, it just sort of everything combined together to be something that was just a really special moment in time of, hang on, this is a... I think we used, used in the marketing came out, I think a new breed of musical 
um, it, it just felt like something different and new and fresh. Mm. Um, I know of a lot of producers who have had tremendous success, often have started as stage managers. So it gives them mm. a first-hand experience of the of the workings of theatre. You have taken a different sort of route, I mean, uh, through uh, administration and, uh, and and management to get coming in that way. Who have been yeah. your, your mentors along the way that have guided you or, or, or been your teachers? Yeah, probably there's probably four or five major major mentors in my life um if you know my father's been been one of them and he's you know working with us now on a couple of shows which is a nice kind of full circle moment um uh, ian scobie who who runs Wom adelaide he, in the early days he was a great mentor uh and then my early days at the really useful company working for andrew Ludwig's company that was run at the time by by tim mcfarlane who i now work with at trafalgar uh, entertainment as well and kerry comerford who was the general manager there and I think probably Tim and Kerry in their, in some, in some ways, very different approach to to their jobs, but um, that universal respect of artists, universal respect of the crew, uh, universal respect of the musicians and the, the craftspeople that put productions together um, and the, you know, honour and, and strong moral compass that they both have in the way in which they approach their work. I think they were both, they were both really important um, role models as to how to navigate the the business side of the industry, I suppose. Um, yeah, and, and to whom I, you know, I still look up to to this day. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, the, working with the really useful group, I, I think that took you a lot into the Asian territory. It did, yeah. So I, I, originally, I sort of started started there working with Tim and Kerry uh, on on some of the Australian things as a as a production coordinator, and then managed to move along working particularly on cats and phantom um in asia just as asia was really starting to open up um and that and sort of developing a model that, that took shows out of australia and then increasingly south africa um redeveloping productions taking them into asia and, and really opening up touring circuits that hadn't been um hadn't been exploded with, with music theater at all so um Taking the first, you know, the first couple of shows going into China certainly, uh, and then seeing China develop from a, a market where you could take shows maybe to to Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, then a couple of years later, Guangzhou and Shenzhen got added to that list, and then and then by the time we came around to you know Matilda a couple of years ago, I think there were seventeen or eighteen different cities on that tour. Um, the Phantom of the Opera tour that's that's still currently booked to go in there shortly. 24 different cities so the growth in china in particular has been enormous so, so musicals are, are obviously very popular in, in the asian market they are yeah absolutely western musicals on, yeah, yeah exactly so early on it was very much a, a it was sort of a combination of a novelty and a prestige sort of a, a, a factor i think certainly in the first few shows that went into china um, but then a, a real love of the art form developed as well. And it, it's interesting. It's, um, so China sort of has developed a huge amount over 20 years, but it's been fairly gradual. And it's markets like Korea that sort of just started probably at the same time as China, but then just exploded. So music theatre in Korea is huge. Japan's been quite a, an established market for some time. Uh, and then the other sort of territories of Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, all of which have grown as well. So 
and more recently the Philippines. So between all of them, there's a really wonderful touring circuit of different places, all very different markets, but all all very very attentive and very interested in the art form. Um, in the early days, I imagine you're compiling international casts that are coming in from everywhere to perform those shows. Are you finding the locals now fulfilling casts of of those musicals playing in Asia? Uh, yes and no. I mean, in, increasingly, we still um, we still approach all of our new shows by by taking in the, an English language tour first, uh, and then looking at how that might be licensed to become a, a local language production. Um, in China, that's probably been done been done with Cats and a couple of other shows. Uh, in Korea, is a fantastic example though, where where the Phantom of the Opera, for example, played in Korea, obviously in. in 2020 and then next year they'll have it coming back in Korean so every couple of years they switch the casts over and uh, have the Korean language production and then a couple of years later the English language production will come back through and it switches back and forward. China's not quite at that point yet but um, there's certainly a market for both Uh, and in Korea they certainly uh, appreciate seeing both different options. Moving into new territories, I imagine, would be quite difficult. You've got the language barrier, but um, it's about establishing relationships with people on the ground there. I, I think your, your, your theatre venues and um, yeah, it's other exactly folk. right. And that, that's why I think I was very, very lucky um, through through this. My work was really useful. Originally, I was um, working as an associate producer on on Cats and Phantom, so I would go into the different territories for sort of two weeks at a time from that load-in period through to opening and then leave again. Uh, and then in, after about 18 months of doing that, which I really enjoyed, I sort of felt like I wanted to get a, a deeper understanding of the culture of each place. And then so uh, recently before that, I'd met my wife, current wife, Rochelle, um, and and we decided that, you know, wouldn't it be nice to work together? So I approached him and Kerry and said, look, I'd really love to go back to these places Um uh, and I would love to work with Rochelle. And they were, they were good enough to say, well, you can go on board as a company management team for the Phantom Tour. Previously, I've been doing Cats. And so we ended up going and, and living in um, Shanghai for six months, Seoul for six months, Taiwan, Taipei for six months, Singapore, Hong Kong, all for about six months at a time with Phantom as well. We're doing company management on that. So sort of living and breathing the show. Um, really working out how to tour the most efficient way possible in those different territories, um, really betting down the relationships with those presenters, which were, you know, the Phantom, Phantom was the first show that a number of those presenters had ever produced, and likewise with those venues. So it sort of ended up giving us this, um, I guess, really practical understanding and knowledge of, of how the different markets work um, and forging really lifelong connections with the, the presenters and partners there at the time. And so that's then served us really, really well moving forward um, with GWB and the other productions and touring things that we've done because we've kind of had that base there to, to build from. Valuable opportunities because, yes, you are learning the culture, but you are, you're starting to understand and know your audience too and, and, and what works for them. Exactly, and and that's very very different from from Korea to to Hong Kong to Singapore, for example, or or mainland China, indeed. So, um, yeah, hugely hugely beneficial, and and such an interesting time as well. Seeing the the changes in those places over the last twenty years has been incredible. Um, certainly, the places like I think Korea and China are probably the, the two that changed the most. Um, 
you know, early days in Korea when we were there, it was it was hard to find a restaurant with an English menu, for example. And now it feels like one of the, you know, a big bustling cosmopolitan city. Now, Torben, you touched on it uh, briefly about five minutes ago. GWB, you are the, the founder and the, the co-owner of that production mm. house, production company. You're the B in GWB. Tell me yeah, about who you are. Who 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 is GWB and how long well, have you been around? Yes, we sort of we do joke it should be B squared. So because it's um uh, Paul Warwick Griffin, which is the G, uh, Gareth Hewitt Williams, the W, and then uh, myself and Rochelle are the two Bs at the end. So um, so the four of us um, founded GWB in 2009, I think, eight, nine, something like that, um, and did so really after having collaborated with it on a couple of projects um, where Paul had actually directed a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in South Africa and the, the four of us kind of, we'd worked prior to that, um, Paul and Gareth were both performers within the Cats company, that one of the Cats companies that I was producing. And um, and so we'd met and become firm friends and, and obviously, you know, respected colleagues. Uh, and so this production of Jesus Christ Superstar came up, which Paul had directed, and we thought, wouldn't that be nice to take that into to Korea? That sounds like a fun adventure. And we've been doing it for, for Andrew for many years, so how hard can it be? Um, <laughs> it proved that it's you know, it was challenging, but it was it was terrific. <laughs> we ended up taking it into um, uh, the the badminton uh, arena from the, the 1988 Seoul Olympics. It was an Olympic Park that's been set up from the Olympics and uh, set up this indoor arena as this huge five and a half thousand seat stadium where we yeah where we staged Jesus Christ Superstar. It was just a, a brilliant experience and. And to this day, a number of the, the performers and colleagues who worked on that show we work with have worked with ever since. So that was, I think, in 2008, maybe. Um, and then after doing it once together, we thought, well, this, this is great. So let's, um, let's keep doing this more. And, and from there, I think we did a number of other things. High School Musical, we toured around through Asia as well. And then we got approached to develop the, the opening production for a new theatre in um, Shanghai, the Culture Square Theatre, which had been... Uh, refurbished and um, uh, recreated to be sort of the home of musicals in Shanghai. And uh, they approached us about crafting an opening production for them, which which we called Ultimate Broadway. And uh, that went on um, 2011, I think, and uh, went back then twice after that. And that was ended up being was our first kind of foray into collaborating with the, the local um, rather than just touring shows in, we collaborated with the local music and drama academy, uh, a local orchestra, um, and then a core company from the UK, from uh, some from the US, um, and pulling together this big sort of extravag musical extravaganza. And it was all designed in this most incredible theatre that um, has all the various bells and whistles in terms of the stage, and it has these this crazy sort of quadruple revolve that goes down into the floor. It has a water fountain feature that raises up out of the floor. And, and basically their brief was, we just want to show off everything that the theatre can do, create a show around that. So, <laughs> um, so, so, so Paul did that and we, we pulled it all together. And uh, that's been a terrific experience. And again, uh, another kind of building block in the kind of the relationships that we were building in, in China. And the Trafalgar uh, Theatre Group, uh, Trafalgar Entertainment now, Sir Howard Panter and, and Dame Rosemary Squire, they were the ambassador group, weren't they? They they uh, 
did magical things with uh, assembling a, a vast amount of theatres and, and live product. Yeah. You were with them for a while too. Yeah, so I, st- I still work with uh, with Howard and Rosie for, for the Theatre Royal. So uh, Tim actually, Tim McFarlane, joined Ambassador Theatre Group after his time at, at Really Useful. And uh, at a point, um, we hadn't been working together for a number of years prior to that, and and he was looking for someone to sort of come on and, and look after production and development for, for ambassadors through Asia Pacific and approached me. So I sort of kind of did that on with, with him for a number of years. Um, in amongst the growth of GWB at the same time. Uh, and that, you know, it went, went quite well. At, at that time, Howard and Rosie, um, they had an amazing vision for ATG, which which involved expansion into the Asia-Pacific and Australia being a real cornerstone of that. Um, and when they left the company, uh, the, I think ATG decided to consolidate back onto really focus on uh, North America, particularly, and, and the UK and Europe. So. Uh, they closed their Australian office, which which meant I went back to sort of GWB full time, and then had the chance at the Adelaide Festival as well, which was which was a nice change. Uh, and then full circle, um, Tim McF- and uh, while we were at ATG, we actually secured the the lease on the Theatre Royal at that time back in 2015. Uh, and then fast forward three years, four years, and then um, uh, Tim is back working with uh, Trafalgar and again said, you know, would I come on board to work with him at Trafalgar? And uh, we reapproached um, a different set of people about the Theatre Royal and re-secure the Theatre Royal. So it feels like this opening on December the 2nd has been a very long time coming. But, um, you know, it feels like it's, um, yeah, it, it feels really good. And I think it's probably a testament certainly to, uh, to Howard and Tim and Rosie's persistence um, around the Theatre Royal in terms of continuing to, to fight for that theatre and to, and I think for their, certainly Howard and Rosie's vision for uh, a worldwide sort of theatre theatre group that that has uh, an impact all around the world, I guess, um, both in terms of uh, operating theatres but also touring productions. Uh, my research tells me that the Theatre Royal is the city's oldest theatre on the same site since 1875. So Sydney's had that jewel in its crown for a while. Yeah, and no, I think I think you're right there. It's been reconfigured in terms of its orientation a couple of times over that journey, um, but it's been there the entire time. And I think part of the the development approval for the MLC Centre at the time was to retain the theatre, and that's when it got re rejigged again. Um, but um, certainly, it's um, the, the current theatre is a real, I think, uh, jewel in Harry Seidler's cap as an architect and a visionary uh, architect who was across the entire MLC centre. But um, I think the theatre itself is really coming back into its own in terms of style and, and what the renovations that have been done there have, have looked to achieve is really show off some of, some of his um, incredible architectural features um, that have probably been covered up for a number of years. I think 1976 was the last time that it underwent that uh, that huge renovation as part of the MLC centre. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it all got changed around, and and certainly he he worked beautifully with you know lots of um, curved shapes and, and angles, um, which which kind of were built over in in a way or covered in, in different forms. There's some some wonderful kind of uh, ribbed beams in the ceiling of the auditorium which which ended up getting covered up with this black felt for cats when cats came in in the mid 80s 
and no one ever uncovered them again. So there's these oh, original wow. golden beams that, that sit right through the theatre, which, which people haven't seen for 30 years. Um, oh, brilliant. And so they've all been, they're all being restored and, and coming back to, 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 to how they were originally. So there's some brilliant features like that that just look stunning. Those pesky cats. <laughs> there's also um, a, a wonderful, uh, iconic circular ceiling piece, uh, a sculpture by, um, a hanging sculpture by Charles Perry, which is going to be reinstated also. I, th I think that was taken out for that original Australian production of Phantom of the Opera. That's right. Uh, yeah, along with, um, so there's the, the Charles Perry sculpture called the, the Mercator. Uh, so that's hanging proudly now in the, in the main lobby. Uh, and then above that is this incredible, Incredible ceiling by um, by Nerve, um, which again sort of was always there, but never brought attention to. Um, and all of that can then be seen, um, as you'll remember, the theatre originally felt a little bit like a, a bunker in the way it was this um, curved um, drum at the top, but all concrete basically. So so half well three quarters of that concrete drum has been taken out and replaced by glass. So you then look into the foyer as opposed to it being this little kind of shoehorn way in through the, the door. Uh, it also fills the whole foyer and uh, on the, the ground level and the level below with all this brilliant light that just didn't exist before. So it feels like such a more welcoming experience than it has in the past. I think a large percentage of Australians have probably been through the doors of the Theatre Royal because during the 80s and 90s, of course, this, it was the it staged and hosted the, those great English mega musicals of Cats and Les Mis and Phantom mm -hmm. of the Opera, and it seemed that everybody wanted to see them. So I'm sure a lot of people will be delighted to see the new Royal. Absolutely. It was, it was such an, an iconic location for all of those shows and, you know, thinking these days where people are like, oh, wow, something's going to play for, for nine months. That's a long run. I'm thinking that Phantom played in there for two years when it first first played at the Royal. So, so it has been used to having significant shows play for very long runs. And uh, whilst we're not attempting to anything, anything like a two-year run in there at the moment, it's, um, we hope to bring it back to that sort of, sort of operation for sure. I remember the upper circle was very steep. Has anything been yeah. done up there? It still is? It's still pretty steep. Um, in some ways, it, it sort of has to be in order to retain the sight line. Um, but we have had it added an extra row on the front edge of the balcony um, of the of the circle. So what was already feeling like you're close to the action, that front row of the balcony almost feels like you could reach out and touch the, the performers on stage. Not quite, obviously, but it, 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 that immediacy between the the audience and the performers is incredible. And it's sort of, there's no other theatre in, in Sydney that has that. Um, and it does mean that for the shows that really require that chemistry between audience and, and performer, they just sit so beautifully in, in a theatre like the Royal. Yes, it's, it's wonderfully intimate from memory, similar to the comedy in Melbourne. It's, uh, it's almost uh, like that yeah, Broadway absolutely. West End theatre. Yeah. Exactly. It's one of those things in Australia is what we forget is that because we take a lot of shows as their kind of their, their iteration following a West End or a Broadway premiere, that the creatives who create these shows generally do so for a theatre somewhere between, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 seats. That's the original size in which a lot of these shows are conceived. So uh, to see them play in that size venue here is it's a very different experience to a 2,000-seat to a theatre. Have you been able to make the stage bigger? Or is it still the same size? And backstage. The stage is still the same size. 
Um, and I think we, we sort of argue that it probably doesn't need to be made any bigger. There's a few little bits of fancy footwork backstage that need to be done for big scenic pieces, but you know, it was it was big enough to accommodate the Phantom of the Opera, which still is one of the, the biggest shows touring around. It probably does mean that, that, that shows like The Lion King are not going to come to the Royal, but, um, you know, they are very few and far between and um, there, there's plenty of other shows that, that, are, that are more geared around that, that intimacy and that connection that you mentioned previously that, that sit perfectly in the, in the Royal. And what does your job as CEO entail? Is that sounds like a delicious job of, of looking for, for exciting theatre to, to put in the venue. It pretty much is, really. There's a great team at the Royal in terms of the, the day-to-day operations who we, we've assembled and um, and who are at the moment currently working through the processes to, to get the building open. Uh, my job primarily is around the programming side of it, of working through the different potential shows that could come in, looking at the, the calendar, looking at the calendar you know, nationally around Australia and also internationally, and seeing what are the right shows that could sit in there for, for a long time, really. I think a, a byline that I, I led for the Theatre Royal is uh, where the city will meet the stage, yeah. which is fantastic, I think. Um, you have a new entrance, do you? Is it still that entrance on King Street, but it's got a new look? That's right. So it's still the entrance on King Street. But it, so it's still you come in through that drum at the front, but as I said before, it, instead of it being, you know, a, a small door and a big concrete drum, that's all been transformed to this big open glass entrance way so as you approach the theater you sort of see right into the into the auditorium at the foyer there um and then the connection to the mlc center um on the other side has been strengthened as well and there's another entrance up on level seven on the first balcony area as well so um the connection to the city and to the the center has been improved vastly which is good brilliant brilliant so you sound like you've been very busy at the, uh, of course you've been busy at the, the Royal in recent weeks with the announcement of all sorts of exciting theatre, which is going to be gracing the stages. Um, first of all, you open with Jagged Little Pill. Um, you said the first preview on, on December 2nd. Um, and then it's down at the Comedy Theatre. Uh, Natalie Bassenthwaite, Tim Draxel, Maggie McKenna. That sounds like it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's an incredible piece of theatre and one that, um, I think Australians probably aren't familiar with yet because it only opened on Broadway, I think about a month before before COVID. So it had had a successful out-of-town tryout. It then opened on Broadway, had a very curtailed season due to COVID, um, was nominated for 15 Tony Awards. So it had a huge buzz about it. Um, but I never actually got to see it on Broadway because it opened, it closed so quickly and then COVID hit. So uh, I've sort of gone into it, sort of working off an archival, and um, which has been great, and then just discussions with the creatives, and it's a brilliant creative team. Uh, but it really is a, a, a modern story, and it's a yes, it's the the music of Alanis Morissette, but but set to an original story, which uh, Diablo Cody, who probably best known as the the uh, screenwriter for the movie Juno, um, wrote, and she won the Tony Award for the book for for Jagged Little Pill as well. Um, and telling the story of the Healy family, which is sort of a, a perfectly imperfect family uh, in, in Connecticut in the US and, and really looking at the, I suppose, the social uh, and emotional issues that that, that family goes through. Um, but it really shines a bit of a spotlight on, on contemporary America, I guess. Um, so it's a, 
a very current story with that brilliant Alanis Morissette catalogue. And quite a coup, to, I think, to secure it so close to uh, the Broadway opening. Normally we have to wait years before we see Broadway Fair out here. Exactly. I mean, we were going to have a great story when we were supposed to open in September that that we would get to reopen Jagged Little Pool before Broadway reopened it. But, of course, uh, so they've, they've reopened recently, which is, which is terrific. Um, and, and, again, receiving an amazing response over there. Uh, Girl from North Country uh, at the Royal in January, Elisa McCune, Helen Delamore, Zara Newman, Pete Carroll, Peter Carroll. Uh, now, now, this is a show, I think, which was expected to be the next big thing on Broadway, but I think succumbed to COVID and didn't have the opportunity to reap the success that it should have. It's right. Yeah, no, we, we sort of, I first saw it at the, the public theatre uh, off Broadway, and it's since, it's since then opened on Broadway. Um, and had the sort of reviews from Ben Brantley, who's sort of known as being the either the maker or breaker of shows from New York Times on Broadway, uh, the sort of reviews from him that, that you couldn't have written yourself as a producer, they were just absolutely rhapsodic. And uh, it's just the most, most beautiful piece. Um, it, it's written and directed by Connor McPherson, um, who, brilliant play, playwright, wonderful director, um, and and all to um, the most incredible song catalogue of, of Bob Dylan. So the combination of all of that together just delivers this most exquisite piece of, it feels almost like a play with music as opposed to, a you know, an inverted commas musical. Um, it, it, there's a great emotional core to the story, um, brilliant acting uh, and a brilliant song catalogue and all of those songs sort of recrafted and, and reimagined, um, so you're sort of hearing them in a new way. It's, um, yeah, just a brilliant piece of theatre all round. And, and I think what ended up happening to it, so it, it closed just before uh, as COVID hit, only just after it opened, and they've only just reopened again in October as well. And so I think they'll be hoping that they they keep on playing on Broadway and move forward to the, the next round of Tonys, which they'll be they'll be up for. They didn't go in for this last round. so. I would think they'll it'll do very well, but um, we're very excited to be opening the show in Australia. Yeah, and I know that the State Theatre Company of South Australia are also going to host it. Uh, will there be a national tour for Girl from North Country? There, there is a national tour for Girl from the North Country, um, but uh, which gets announced uh, where in probably in about three weeks' time from this. I think just before Christmas. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, and in American Paris, I'm very excited about that. I saw that on Broadway and it is the most spectacular uh, evening of dance and, and Gershwin uh, music. Oh, it's just stunning. I, I, yeah, we, we were the same. We saw, we saw, I saw it in London, actually, at Dominion and then also at the Chatelet in, in Paris. And it's, as you say, just an exquisite example of... Um, uh, the highest level of dance that you'd ever see in a musical, um, and and along with you know all set to the music of the Gershwins, and I think the other thing that I was so blown away was the incredible projections that are utilised right through it from fifty nine productions that just create these incredible scenes in such a beautiful way. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of the real deal of the show for for me. Um, and for us to be to be producing that and um, collaborating with the Australian Ballet on that production feels like a perfect perfect match. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to give too much away, but that moment with the flag at the start when it sort of 
unfurls and goes and disappears. And I thought, right, you've got me. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant stagecraft. Yeah. So, Tobin, what's what's your uh, opening night routine? Do you have a, a ritual that you like to go through? Are, are you superstitious in the theatre? Not really, actually. I kind of, it always feels like I do, you know, depending on my involvement in the show, one of the things that, you know, we try try to do as a, as a real, as a ritual is, you know, Rochelle and I, we, we would look to, to go and, and visit each company member before the show starts. So, you know, somewhere between the hour call and the half hour call, we'll try to get around to every dressing room and just put our head in and just, you know, connect with the performers very, very briefly. Uh, that's probably, that's as close to a ritual as uh, I'd probably really ever have for opening night, little moment. It's not long with anybody, but it's just that moment that feels like this is something different to every other show. Yeah, just, just touch base, check in with each other and because um, you're all in it together. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and once that, you know, once that first note strikes and, and, it, and it all starts, then there's no stopping it. So just to have that little point of reference um, before it all kicks off, um, yeah, is, is really important. Um, yeah, it doesn't, they don't come around very often. It's that, um, that thing, it's, I think... The sport analogy is always of, of sort of the grand final, isn't it? And kind of yeah. people play for lots of their lives without getting to a grand final or, or whatever. But um, opening nights are a bit like that. Yeah. And have you discovered a, or have you recognised a, a favourite part of the new theatre world yet for you? Where, where do you like spending some time? Well, this has been incredibly challenging for me because I've been in Adelaide through this last sort of COVID outbreak and the borders are obviously still closed between South Australia and New South Wales. So I haven't I haven't seen the theatre for probably three months and so right. much has happened over the last three months that uh, I'm desperate to get back in there and uh, and see. But I, I think what uh, I think what the ladies will be most impressed with is the fact that we've uh, more than doubled the number of women's bathrooms, which is is a small but incredibly important fact. Uh, and one that, that was long overdue. Uh, so that will make just comfort levels for the lady patrons all the, all the better. Um, and then I think the other thing that I think will be really special is uh, just inside the auditorium, and as I, as I mentioned, those gold ribs that have been uncovered that were covered previously in black felt, um, the, what they deliver by way of um, grandeur as you walk into the auditorium is, is really impressive. They look beautiful. I hope there's lots of red and gold throughout the place. They, look, there it's a, it's a feature right the way through, so um, it, it looks stunning in a way that you know it had often been covered up. Or uh, I think if what cats didn't get rid of, Samson probably did by way of it all becoming very black and very dark. So all of that has been lifted right back. So it's um yes, yeah, it feels like a really we always wanted it to kind of um, feel like it. You know, without it being kind of um, in any way sort of a, a elitist or, or uh, confronting for it to feel like it's an occasion for people to come come out to the theatre and for yeah. people to, to want to celebrate and get dressed up and, and have a great moment. 
It is a theatre royal after all. Uh, and great exactly, to hear yeah. that you're looking after your uh, your lady patrons. Um, I, I think it's architects have often underestimated the uh, the number of toilets needed uh, for, for the ladies. So um, that's going to be much appreciated. No, they absolutely, it's such a, such a common problem. And when you've only got a 20-minute interval in most shows and... You spend the time lining patrons up. Patrons generally need to get there. It's just, it's just not pleasant for anybody. So, to, to make that process better and more efficient, um, feels like it's long overdue. Well, Torben Chook is for next week, um, December second. Uh, first uh, preview of uh, Jagged Little Pill, but also the opening of sorts for uh, for the Theatre Royal. Uh, it's great to have it back on the scene in Sydney. A, a delicious dose of class culture and community for for the city so um yeah have fun thanks peter it's been great to talk about it all and um talking it through with you you know this afternoon has, has made me all, all the more excited to, to get into the theater and to, to welcome in our first patrons can't wait that was a great chat with torben super to hear the delights that await with a visit to the theater royal and also to hear another perspective of what it was like for theatre makers navigating the creative process and safety of their audiences in times of COVID. Plenty of great fare coming to the Royal, so look out for Jagged Little Pill, Girl from the North Country or An American in Paris. The first shows announced for the theatre. It certainly is an exciting time to be returning to our favourite places, one of them being the Theatre Royal. Chuggers to Dorbin the Trafalgar Entertainment Group and all at the Theatre Royal for a splendid opening. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.